is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman on the menu. If you're one of the many people out there who still hasn't finished their Valentine's Day shopping, well, good luck to you. Whatever you find, if you can find something, it is going to cost you. Inflation taking its toll on flowers, chocolate, dining. The balance found the average price for a dozen roses jumping 22% from last year. We go in-depth into the cost of Valentine's Day. Now, for those of you who don't have a significant other anymore, did you ever share your streaming passwords? And if you did, which one of you ended up controlling the account? We'll take a look at the ethics of password sharing post-breakup. Some Super Bowl ads are all the talk today, but others not so much. And where were the masks at the Super Bowl? It appeared most people just didn't even bother. Worry is growing in Washington that a Russian invasion of Ukraine could happen any time. Ukraine's president responding to reports that it could be Wednesday. If an invasion does occur, what's going to happen to the oil and gas prices, the stock market? We'll get into how record prices at the pump might uh, shoot up even more. And scientists warning the next COVID variant could be stronger, worse than Delta or Omicron. But we begin with Valentine's Day and what it is costing all of us. Trey Bodge is a shopping expert, lifestyle writer, whose website, truetrade.com, helps people with smart shopping. Trey, thanks for being with us. So it looks as if if you're just now venturing out or online to get chocolate or flowers or that sort of thing, it's going to really cost, huh? Yes. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Uh, cost is up across so many categories, especially in groceries. You know, you mentioned the balance, uh, finding that uh, groceries were up, chocolates were up, diamonds were up. I mean, in filet mignon is up 154%. And so if you are venturing out there to buy gifts and chocolates in, in particular and roses, you will typically pay more. I do have one favorite uh, tip for the year for roses. And this is something that I see year after year is that if you are close to a Whole Foods, they they have a two dozen rose special for $19.99. And this is something they've had for many years. And I think it's the best deal you're going to find. Yeah, I was going to ask you about flowers because I've seen a couple of people saying, you know what, I went to some of the big guys, you know, the online retailers. And usually in past years, it's been pretty good. I mean, they're always expensive, right? Especially if you want delivery today, because today is the day. So they know they can charge an extra 15 bucks to get it there on the 14th. But they've been saying that the flowers that came weren't all that nice like they didn't stack up like they did in other years so is it better to just like even because use the big ones you can send them far away right but could you google like a local florist and, and go that route if it's close to somebody yeah, I mean, going the local route is a good idea. I mean, I do think if you do have the time to go in in person and take a look, like to your point, they may not be beautiful this year, but seeing it in person, maybe going to a Whole Foods, Trader Joe's, something like that, so you can actually evaluate the roses in person before you bring them to your significant other might be a good option today. Is this all, though, the, the, the price increases for flowers, chocolate, is that all to be blamed on the pandemic and all the stuff we've been talking about, it seems endlessly, about supply chain shortages? Or are there some people maybe out there who are taking advantage of the situation? Well, from what I can see, and I've been following this for years, and especially very closely during the pandemic, is that those supply chain issues that we've been hearing about and talking about are real. And this happened because at the very beginning of the pandemic, obviously, we had people who were ill. And so staffing 
problems cause a lot of other problems. There's a domino effect across the globe. Obviously, we've been seeing freighters being trapped in certain places and items not coming in on time. And this just snowballs. And so this is why we're seeing these price increases across so many categories. And it really is impacting us during these gift giving holidays. You know, first of all, people are having a hard time finding certain things. And then when they do find something, the price is higher. As far as we know, though, there's no like C's candy shortage or anything we need to worry about. Uh, <laughs> not that I've heard of, not that I've heard of, but I am seeing a price increase in chocolates. And in fact, you know, I, I have a teenage daughter and I wanted to run out and grab her something at CVS today. And normally the day of you start seeing those discounts popping up like 50% off chocolates. There were no discounts. And so I paid full price today. Uh, so hopefully if you are seeing your significant other, maybe tomorrow, you can go <laughs> yeah. in maybe tonight or tomorrow and tomorrow and the signs go up. Price. Yeah. Trey Vod, shopping expert, lifestyle writer, true Trey, T-R-A-E.com. But let's say you're not seeing your significant other tomorrow because, well, <laughs> you're not seeing them anymore. You're still using their Netflix, but though. T- right. So What's with that? Did you see the celebrity reel at the Super Bowl? And did you notice anything about all the celebs? Yeah. No masks, right? And then a lot of the fans, no No masks. masks. So we'll talk about that later on. And then the threats of a Russian invasion in Ukraine could send the already high gas prices even higher. Right now, though, lots of people who had a Valentine last year are now alone this year. These things, you know, they happen if the relationship was... Serious enough, couples got a joint streaming service and shared a password for that and other digital platforms. So what happens to the passwords? Who keeps the service and who pays for it? With us is Nick Layton of the Etiquette Podcast, Were You Raised by Wolves? I love that title. <laughs> it's very good. Yeah. So, uh, Nick, thanks for being with us. Uh, so, Thank you. So let, let's talk about that. So you have a couple. They shared the uh, streaming Password to, I don't know, Netflix. Uh, oh, there's that free commercial for Netflix. Huh? Uh, <laughs> to Netflix. Uh, now they separate. And what happens to the password? Isn't that a great question? Yeah. And I was looking at the Emily Post book from 1922. She never weighed in on this. <laughs> so this is definitely something that we're having to figure out. I guess uh, from an etiquette perspective, the question is really all about being mindful of other people. So as we sort of have this conversation, that's our baseline. What will sort of be the most mindful? And I think a lot of people would say, who's paying for this account? Possession is nine-tenths of the law here. So if it's on your credit card, that's your account. And it's kind of up to you to decide whether or not you want to keep sharing. Right. That was exactly my first thought. Okay, if I am paying for the thing, and then it depends on which side of the breakup I'm on, I guess, or how charitable I am, then just change the thing next time you log in. It's not a big deal. You don't need my Netflix anymore. Bye. Yeah, no, I mean, if you're not sharing my bathroom anymore, you don't need to be sharing my lawn. But I think a question is, do you want to give somebody a heads up about it? And I think unless it's a really nasty breakup where you're de-Facebooking, you're blocking on Instagram, it's final. It's nice to give somebody a heads up that you're about to change the password just so that they can be sort of prepared for it. Because I think if they log in and they see that they can't get in anymore, that's going to sting a little bit if that kind of felt uh, a little out of left field. I mean, there are so many different services now that people can have passwords for. This can get kind of complicated, couldn't it? Well, and this actually even goes into people's divorce settlements about who gets which password and which account. Really? Um, Because, yeah, uh, of course, there's Netflix and we can give free ads to everybody else. There's HBO Go, uh, HBO Max, there's the Hulus, there's the Peacocks, you know, there's a lot of options. Um, But, yeah, I I think if it's uh, a real serious 
commingling of finances in life, then you could divide the assets like you are dividing up, you know, who gets the couch and who gets the cat. I wonder but, if it, yeah, if it's your account, yeah, it's do with it as you wish. I wonder if it falls in line with what you're saying, like the D Facebook and the D Instagramming, which is the advice, right? Especially if it's like a bad one, like block them for a while. So you don't have to look at everything that they're posting. And then, you know, if you're still sharing the login and then what if they're watching something that gets you thinking like, oh, are they, who are they watching that with? Or, oh, or, or, yeah, oh, are they, they watching watch that because the it reminds them of times. me? Like that's tricky territory, right? Yes, or you actually have people sabotaging people's Netflix queues and putting in all sorts of uh, movies to make the recommendation <laughs> algorithm, Mess up the algorithm recommend all sorts of movies uh, about you know cheating and infidelity. But there's a lot of people who actually break up and they just decide to keep sharing passwords. Like that's the thing that a lot of people do. They're like, we're no longer together, but you know we could keep this going. So these are like and, really, really nice people. Then uh, certainly very nice people. What usually happens though is they'll start dating somebody new. Ah. They'll see the name of an ex as one of the profiles. And then they'll be like, oh, you know, Brenda's got to go. So <laughs> that's usually what happens. But then what some people do is they'll change the name of that profile just to be something more innocuous so that a new boyfriend or girlfriend doesn't realize that an ex still has a profile. Just make them so, make them guest, you know? Exactly, yeah. Guest four. Yeah, or like mom's house. So... I think, though, if you're not obligated to share and once a relationship is over, you know, that was one of the perks. One of the perks of getting to date me was you got to use my Netflix account and, you know, you've lost the privilege. All right. <laughs> Nick Layton, Etiquette Podcast. Were you raised by wolves? Why, why didn't Emily Post foresee this in 1922? Now we're, that's why we have Nick. Coming up, Ukraine's president preparing for a Russian invasion of his country as soon as, well, maybe today. Some scientists are worried that the next COVID variants could be much stronger than either Delta or Omicron. But first, the Super Bowl ads. There was a Larry David one. There was a Sopranos one. Anna Kendrick was in one uh, with Barbie and the um, home buyers. With us now, Emily Florio, Chief Strategy Officer, the advertising agency Johnson and Segan. Emily, thanks for being with us. Uh, so, from what you're seeing out there, what seemed to go over well yesterday? Well, you hit it. Um, I think the Sopranos. The Barbie Dream House, Uber Eats was a favorite. I think there was lots of great spots last night. There was a lot of discussion, as I'm sure you remember, before the games about whether the tone would be right. Uh, there was a lot of, obviously, concern last year because of the pandemic and the year before because of the pandemic about all kinds of commercials on television. Did the sponsors hit the appropriate tone, do you think? Well, you know, I think Americans, well, and I don't think it's, it's proven Americans are one of the most optimistic, future-focused nations on the planet. So I think I think they did. I think looking forward, wanting to connect, um, celebrating, celebrating, you know, that the future is looking bright. I think that was the absolute right tone. What about the demo they were targeting? There's a lot of talk saying, you know, a lot of these were pointed right towards the millennial crowd. Is that just because, you know what, this is the demo now that uh, is aging into that kind of area and they've got the money and this is who we want to be watching these things. So uh, here you go, guys. Uh, yes, I think that's absolutely true. You know, millennials are entering their peak earning years. They're buying houses, settling down and having families finally. So, yep, they're they're the ones that are spending these days. Is there anything that didn't work in your view? You know, I think there's a couple of things that didn't work. I think anytime you you lead off with someone getting electrocuted or you kill off a cute puppy, it, it, it's a tough pill to swallow for some audiences. 
But I think, you know, and humor is always hit or miss, but I think by and large, um, it was a pretty positive review. Some things will perform better than others, but all in all, I think a pretty positive review. Did and you, the game was great, which always helps. I know, yeah, that helps, right? Did you get up from the couch and scan the bouncing QR code, or did you just sit there and watch that thing bounce around the screen? Well, you know, I kind of get paid to get up and scan the <laughs> QR code. <laughs> so you but did. Huh? All my friends are right there with me. So, so what did you think of that one, though? Because because it, it crashed. There's a Coinbase ad. They want you to scan it, and they send you somewhere. But So they spent all this money for it, and it was just you know the color-changing QR bouncing around. Some people, A, didn't get the idea what they were supposed to do or why this was happening. And then, B, it actually crashed their website. So whatever new users they were going to try and lure in, some of them, lots of them, thousands of them, couldn't even get on. So to your point, A, if you're going to take a risk like that spot, you better make darn sure that the tech works on the back end. And so it's a real it's a real heartbreak that they weren't able to capture all of that. And then, too, you know, it, it was a big risk. Not saying your name, not saying anything, it's a big risk. But I think it time will tell, but I think it'll pay off. A lot of people jumped off their couch to see – what the heck was, that was all about. And there's another one going straight after those um, nostalgia-loving late millennials, early Gen Zs. Let's talk a little bit about the Larry David spot, because we were talking yeah. about that in the office this morning. That interesting choice, some people thought, uh, for cryptocurrency, which you think of as being aimed more toward uh, younger audience, and, and Larry David is, you know, no spring chicken. So is that an, <laughs> interest, an interesting uh, concept? Well, I think crypto in the Super Bowl was an interesting play across the board, right? Crypto is trying to expand its reach outside of young millennial Gen Z males. So I think using someone like Larry David is really calculated to say it's not just for the kids anymore. You know which one I liked was actually the McDonald's one where everybody went up to the window and went, ah, uh, because it's like <laughs> yeah. we've all been in that. <laughs> you, you know what you, you know what you're going to order or you get there and you, you got to think, anything else? Uh, and then everybody did it. I kind of liked that one, even though it was, you know, dumb. <laughs> you know what? It was not my favorite spot. And yet it's also you knew exactly from the second it started. You're like, yeah, I've been there before. Yeah. That sounds about right. All right. Emily Florio, Chief Strategy Officer, the advertising agency Johnson and Seekin. This is KNX In-Depth. Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Lake County's mask mandates for the indoor, the outdoor mega events is still in effect. Everybody at the Super Bowl was supposed to wear one yesterday. Actually, they gave everybody a mask yeah. when they went there, uh, but hardly anybody wore one. COVID numbers are down here, but could the Super Bowl end up being a super spreader? Dr. William Schaffner, professor of preventative medicine and infectious diseases over at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine, uh, and has been with us many, many times. Doctor, thanks for coming back. So, uh, you know, if you were watching yesterday, I'm sure you saw on your TV what we all witnessed, which was most people really weren't wearing the masks that they were given for free. Uh, does this run the risk of being a super spreader event, or does the science no longer support that notion at large outdoor gatherings, or kind of big gatherings anyway? <laughs> well, guys, I was wondering that very same thing as I was watching uh, the camera scan the audience from time to time. I didn't see anyone wearing a mask. Uh, the virus was at the Super Bowl. 
there were people who brought the virus with them, unbeknownst, of course, and I'm sure there was some spread. I don't think it'll be a super spreading event. Today, so many people are vaccinated, and in addition, Omicron has infected so many people to give them a sense of natural protection, such that I think these large outbreaks of uh, infection are not going to occur. But there are undoubtedly some people who will go home with a viral uh, companion and get sick in a day or two. Yeah, I mean, and I guess that's kind of how we've seen it as we've gone through, because it's not the Super Bowl on an island. We've been having concerts. We've been having sports games around the country. So people anecdotally will say, you know what? You know, I thought I got it. I went to the game. Um, but it's not like thousands and thousands of people are all seeing the uptick, you know, a, a week after one of these events is held. I, I think that that's exactly the nice way to put it. Uh, and, and the accurate way, there will be some spread, but not a, an enormous splurge of infection. And we're seeing this around the country. Um, in my part of the country, we're very unvaccinated, but nonetheless, cases and hospitalizations are gratifyingly trending down, not far enough. I mean, in the United States, over 2,000 people are still dying every day. If this were flu back in the old days, we would be all a flutter at a really bad flu outbreak. But we've become a little uh, uh, conditioned if you want to say it that way, to COVID and the damage that it continues to do. By the way, it's interesting you, you mentioned the flu, and I was actually thinking about this the other day, and, and maybe we even talked about this with you on the show you know, a couple of months ago. There was this expectation that we might this year have a, a twin you know, uh, issue with both COVID-19, Omicron, and influenza. Have we? I haven't really heard anything about the flu. Well, flu... T- I was one of those who was worried about a twindemic. Uh, flu took off in November and December, and it looked as though we were on track to have a moderately severe influenza season. And for reasons that even the fluologists don't know, come January, flu cases just drop down, and they're below the epidemic threshold now. We're getting to the end of that time of the year when flu usually flourishes. So we think we've ducked another bullet as regards flu this year for reasons that aren't clear. Yeah, I mean, do you have a theory as to why that would be? Because, you know, the the drop off. I mean, I guess it may be people were still masking up somewhat or to have that happen the way it did. Yeah. And and by the way, am I right about this? I, I don't think that this was one of those years where the flu vaccine was a particularly good match, was it? It It was off target somewhat. It was okay, but not great. Uh, My best theory is, frankly, that enough school children were still wearing masks. You see, school kids are the great distributors of the influenza virus in uh, in our society. They make more influenza virus and shed more for a longer period of time. They spread it amongst themselves, and then they bring it home. But I think even though they were back at school, there's enough social distancing and mask wearing, so it really dampened the spread of flu. That's my current theory, anyways. 
You know, there there is some um, news coming out here from California, from our uh, capital. Uh, there was some question about whether or not the the state would uh, back off of the mandate that teachers and children in classrooms continue to wear masks come the uh, 15th, tomorrow, in fact, of February. And it appears as if the state of California is not going to do that. Uh, good idea? Uh, I actually think it's better to wear the mask a month longer than to take the mask off a month too soon. Uh, we're concerned in infectious diseases and public health. We'd like to see a really sustained drop in cases and hospitalizations. And by sustained, I mean eight to 12 weeks before we move into uh, a more open and, uh, and carefree environment. Dr. William Shafter there, professor, preventative medicine, infectious diseases at Vanderbilt. And uh, to follow up on, on the point you just made, they've set a date for deciding. At least. <laughs> so it's decide. a couple more weeks. They say February 28th. That's when they'll announce uh, whether it's going to be safe, when they think it's going to be safe. Right. So pushing it a couple weeks with masks and then, you know, they could always say next month or right. three weeks from now or whatever. But a decision coming later this month. On the 28th. And then you're yeah, right. Then they'll say, well, it'll be sometime in March, which yes. is what, what Dr. Schaffner mm-hmm. was recommending. Yeah. Waiting another April. month. Yeah. So, okay. Well, tensions are escalating as the Russian threat of invasion looms over Ukraine. The U.S. says more than 130,000 Russian troops are staged outside of Ukraine and could invade at any moment. The uh, Ukrainian president declared that Wednesday will be a day of unity. This is he addressed reports that a Russian invasion of his country could begin as early as that day. With us is Matthew Schmidt, professor of national security, international affairs, University of New Haven, has worked with the Congress members as a consultant on strategic planning. Matthew, thanks for being here. So where do you think we are now with this moving target? Because we have all this talk about Wednesday. Wednesday could be the day. And then on the other side, we've got, you know what, renewed diplomatic efforts, more conversations could be coming. Um, The president was on the phone with Putin this weekend. I think we're in a holding pattern. Uh, I think that Vladimir Putin, as has been the case, controls the operational tempo here. And he's the only one that knows if and when he would move uh, forces across the border. So what is I'm trying to, to, to figure out what the strategy is on the part of the U.S. and our uh, allies uh, by putting out all this information. And there's there are these constant leaks, right? Uh, deliberate leaks, of course, about what the Russians might be up to with false flag operations, with uh, uh, mercenaries being stationed throughout parts of Ukraine. Is it that we're trying to back Putin into a corner so that if he invades, he couldn't hide behind any pretenses and it would just be clearly an act of naked aggression? I think that's it. It's a, it's a form of information warfare, and we're trying to not allow him to construct a narrative uh, before he goes in, if he goes in. And we're trying to, to lay our groundwork to, uh, to invalidate any narrative he does try to create, uh, you know, after he would start um, hostilities. I think it's really interesting right now that we have this, this idea that potentially Biden uh, went to some allies and said to Zelensky and said, hey, it's going to be the 16th. And then we see Zelensky coming out of this meeting and saying, well, he throws up the statement, right? Perhaps NATO membership is a kind of dream for NATO, which is, which is a, you know, what the term of art that we use here, right? Floating an idea to see how his domestic uh, audience is going to take it. Um, but I don't think those things are unrelated because there is a lot of pressure now for Zelensky to simply 
do that and get the West off the hook. The West can say, well, we didn't capitulate to Putin, um, but the Ukrainians chose to give him one of the things he wanted in, in anyway, and that was enough for him to choose to not escalate the war. What about all the talk that Zelensky is not too happy with, you know, what we have been saying, what the president's been saying, that, you know, we've been so sure that Putin is either ready to or going to, and he's over there saying, you know what, I'm right here, it's my country, and, and I don't want you guys saying this because it, it could just also give him the green light to go. Yeah, he has to play it both ways, right? So on the one hand, I think he, he clearly understands the strategy that was being deployed, the information warfare. On the other hand, he's responsible to his own public, and he has to protect them. And, and whatever words are used in the U.S. or in London, um, you know, as part of their information ploys, they can have bad effects on Ukraine um, in terms of the economy and, and the long-term outlook. And so he's got to worry about that. And I think he's just he's not in a good position because – uh, any way he turns, uh, there's going to be some hurt. So would you hazard a guess on the uh, likely outcome? The likely outcome for Wednesday or overall? Well, uh, both. Both. Um, I think we're very close to uh, an invasion. I want to be clear for the listeners that this is not an invasion. It is a reinvasion. Uh, Russia has been in the country since 2014, and they are at war now. Um, but I, I think we're very close to that, but no one knows except for Vladimir Putin. And there are reasons to go and not to go. And the thing that's mostly deterring him, I believe, is the risk of a lot of body bags coming home and hurting him with his own public, uh, because that does matter, um, unlike we usually think of him. He's not an autocrat. There's politics. Um, in terms of the long term, the Ukrainian people will win no matter what. I just got off the phone with a, a correspondent friend of mine in Kiev, and he was talking about how all of the gun shops were empty, how um, tens of thousands of people have joined these self-defense units and are training every weekend. And in my own experience in the country, what I've come to understand this as is Ukraine's war of independence. And they see themselves now as European they see themselves as having a right to determine their own destiny. And those two things aren't going to change. And enough of the people in that country are willing to fight and willing to die for it so that in the end, the question isn't, will Ukraine win? But how much um, pain will Vladimir Putin force to happen uh, while they do that. Which the Russians have to know, right? So, I mean, we get to this point to see how far they go in. No incursion is, is a minor incursion when it's a sovereign country, but then That's rolling right. into Kiev is a totally different thing. Yes, um, that would be, uh, I think, terrible for both sides. And I think Putin understands that uh, he wouldn't do that as a first move. My best guess, um, you know, spitballing the, the, the grand tactics of this thing is that if he decides to move in the east, he would also probably move to um, be in a striking position against Kiev. Um, he'd have to deal with a city called Zhytomyr because there's uh, that's where the, essentially the Ukrainian 82nd Airborne are. Um, and he'd have to pin them down or engage them in some case uh, in order to be able to move uh, further down the highway to Kyiv. Um, but I think that is a that is a last resort for uh, for him because um, the Ukrainians would hurt him badly. 
Matthew Schmitz, professor at uh, University of New Haven, has worked with the uh, Senate and House Armed Services Committee on strategic planning. Matthew, thanks. More in depth to come, the uh, economic effects, if this does happen, if there is an invasion. We'll talk about that. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. The uncertainty over Ukraine impacting the economy here in the U.S. Stock market wobbly. Investors aren't sure what could happen. And, of course, when whatever happens, happens. Oil prices climbing, nearing $100 a barrel. Gas prices already setting records here in Southern California. Phil Flynn is an energy analyst and author of the Energy Report at the Price Futures Group in Chicago. Phil, thanks for being with us. So let's play this out. Uh, there's already, as you know, a great anxiety in the market has been now for a good number of weeks. Uh, if the worst case scenario happens and there is an invasion or one of our analysts in the last segment referred to it as a reinvasion of Ukraine by the Russians, what does that do to the market first? And then we'll get into the rest of the economy. Well, I think to the stock market, initially, it's going to be a shock. We will probably sell off uh, and then put it in perspective. But I think from oil, it's a lot more critical. I think it could drive oil prices up to $100 a barrel or higher. Uh, that could have a negative impact on the economy. Uh, and I think at the same time, it makes us realize just how vulnerable we are in, in the world right now with supplies being as tight as they are. So I think it could be a major shock to the system. Uh, we could see uh, the lights go off in Europe and, you know, heck, Europe would enter a dark age, at least for a short period of time. And take us through the reasons why those things could happen. I think it's because over the last few years, Europe has decided to become more dependent on Russia for its energy supplies. You know, they've been into this green energy transition. You know, they've closed gas fields. You know, they try to they've closed down nuclear power plants, you know, and the flip side of that is they have to become dependent on somebody to keep the lights on. So they've looked to, to Russia because Russia's in the neighborhood. They can supply cheap natural gas. Well, Russia, for their part, they use energy as a weapon. They've done it before. You mentioned this as a reinvasion of Ukraine. I would argue it was about the pipelines uh, in Ukraine that they went in the last time. It's about energy dominance. And right now, Putin realizes if he's going to make a move on Ukraine, he should do it now because he controls energy in Europe. And that gives him the most um, sway uh, in this at this period of time. I don't know if this is comparing uh, apples and oranges. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. But the world took a, a, a huge, uh, as you know, economic uh, uh, impact from the pandemic. Uh, would an invasion of Ukraine, however you want to frame it, you know, reinvasion, invasion. Would it be analogous to, to that uh, or a worse shock or, or what? Totally different because during the uh, pandemic, we saw the economies just shut down, right? And that caused a glut of oil because nobody was driving, nobody was flying. In this case, it's the opposite. You have demand right now that's already exceeding supplies in the global market. And a disruption of supplies from a major producer like Russia, who's one of the biggest 
oil producers in the world, one of the biggest natural gas producers in the world, if they decided to cut off supplies, it couldn't be easily made up. So that could cause a price shock like we, what we saw in the 1970s, you know, during the Arab oil embargo, where prices just went through the roof, uh, and, and it could push us into a recession. So then we get the question, uh, where's OPEC? Can't they just produce more? And you say what? That's the magic question right now. I mean, Saudi Arabia probably is the OPEC country that has the most spare production capacity that 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 could increase production. Uh, but right now, that, that they're not really in a hurry to do that. Um, the relationships between Saudi Arabia and the United States are at a very low level right now. The guy who controls the spigot in Saudi Arabia, President Biden won't even speak to uh, Crown Bent's Bin Salman, uh, because he doesn't agree with him uh, because of a potential murder that he did years ago. So uh, that tension is really playing out in the market. But right now, even though OPEC has been promising more oil for the last couple of months, they failed to deliver. Part of that is because of problems in Libya and Nigeria, but part of it may be that they just can't do it. And without Saudi Arabia, they probably won't do it. And that means that we're going to be undersupplied. I thought the U.S. in recent years has become a major player in terms of oil. Has it not? It has. But the problem is, is that we seem to be backing away from that under this administration. And I think one of the things that this administration has done on day one by canceling the Keystone Pipeline, drilling moratoriums, threatening more taxes, uh, more regulations. uh, And they basically have told investors, stay away from U.S. oil and gas. It's not a safe place to be. Um, Even if you don't think it's going to have a major impact on greenhouse gases like the pipeline wouldn't have. Um, the government is saying we don't want it. And the Biden administration has nobody from the oil and gas industry in their administration. They have a lot of green energy people, but none on oil and gas. So it's almost like they have decided to ignore U.S. oil and gas. They're not players at the table. And when they need extra supply, they end up calling you know, OPEC. And so far, OPEC hasn't delivered. Phil Flynn, energy analyst, the Energy Reports Price Futures Group in Chicago. One hope to get us out of the pandemic is that the variants will continue to get weaker to the point where, you know, catching COVID would be like catching a regular cold. But some scientists in the UK, they are warning that new variants that could emerge might be worse, causing more serious illness and deaths. All right. So with us to talk about this, Dr. David Agus, founding director of USC's Ellison Institute for Transformative Medicine. Dr. Agus, thanks for being back with us. So um, listen, and you know this, and we went into the break before the segment talking about this. Viruses mutate. This is what they do. And we've seen this one do it uh, quite a few times. There will be more variants uh, coming down the pike eventually. Oh, there'll be more variants now. We're seeing them. The question is, will they take hold? Um, will they actually increase in number? Are they going to have a growth advantage to enable them to push out the variants we have now? And the answer is yes. And our hope and prayers are that they won't be aggressive, that they won't make us as sick. Very much like Omicron did make us as sick at Delta. We hope the same continues to happen, but it doesn't have to. I was going to say, I mean, there is this misconception, and I think it is a misconception, right, that that as viruses mutate, they will mutate toward a more benign form. But there are plenty of examples, are there not, where that hasn't been the case at all? 
Well, you know, we call it an optimization parameter in engineering. What the viruses are doing is they're getting more infectious. Every single one, by definition, will be more infectious than the last. It's by chance whether they're going to make us sicker or not. It really is luck of the draw. It has nothing to do with necessarily their evolution because we're selecting out for the ones that get into us and take advantage of our system more than others. Because remember, viruses aren't alive. They need to use the machinery of our cells to divide. And if it can get in quicker and binds better, one virus will be better than another variant. Right. So it wants better transmission. The severity is what we have to work out once we find that something is circulating. What do we need to do and be better at as we move forward? Obviously, a lot of this comes down to to monitoring and, and knowing about things as early as possible. Right. So we're part of a system called GPAS, GPAS, which is the global surveillance system for these viruses, where people around the globe are uploading the RNA sequences of COVID-19 now. And then we analyze it and we say, hey, this may have a growth advantage. Let's pay attention. If you start to see a bunch of different sequences pop up that are similar but different than the other ones, then we start to take concern and we look at its behavior. And if the behavior shows it's spreading really quickly and people are getting sick, then we can call that a variant of concern. But the key now is we're on top of it. We never had surveillance before. Now we do. And we do have the ability of uh, you know, making people change behavior if we need to, wearing masks, et cetera. We can look and say, do the vaccines work against these new variants? And we're not. We're pretty lucky to date against all of the current variants, the vaccines have prevented serious illness. That's a pretty lucky and astounding observation. Okay, so, but if we want to kind of try to take luck off the table a bit, uh, the uh, antivirals that hopefully will soon be in in greater supply than they currently are, uh, do they play increasingly uh, an increasingly important role in the future as variants inevitably come into being? Oh, yeah. I mean, so if they hold true, because they seem to work against all of the variants to date, is that there's not a selective pressure to change where these oral pills are binding, or the Pfizer pill in this case, and it works remarkably well. So this will prevent serious illness in people who can't make a good immune response, who are unvaccinated. So it does give us the ability of taking a sigh a little bit. You know, what we worry about are unvaccinated and people who cannot make a good enough immune response and they get hospitalized and they fill up our hospital systems. We can't take care of cancer, heart disease and others. And that's when shutdowns have happened and will continue to happen. So the more we get vaccinated and the more we have these pills to block the serious response, the less likelihood it is that we will shut down. When do we think we know if we're heading into a, you know, COVID shot every year or tailoring the vaccines towards these variants? Because this first round, you know, incredibly successful, pretty broad based immunity. It's been able to tackle what we've seen so far. Well, what we're seeing is that immunity is going down about 6% per month. So there's no question we're going to have continued boosters at some point. Will they be a different variant? Potentially, we really have to see what happens with the variants. But when you look at a good portion of the world is not yet vaccinated, a good portion of the United States is not yet vaccinated, and there's a lot of virus in those individuals. And then we've got animal hosts. We've seen transmission from animals like minks to humans. We have the majority of the deer in the United States are infected with COVID-19. We haven't yet seen transmission. There may be, we haven't seen it between deer and human. But if there is, here's another reservoir for potential mutations or alterations. So we're going to, for the next foreseeable future, have boosters at some regular point 
to keep immunity up, to keep the hospitals open so we can take care of other diseases. And, and is that really kind of the crux of the matter, is getting the public to psychologically adjust to the notion that this really is a different world we're now living in uh, after the the emergence of the coronavirus. It's a new disease. It's still not fully understood, right? We still don't know what its trajectory is going to be in the decades uh, and maybe more to come. And you look at, for example, we were talking earlier in the show about the Super Bowl, and you see people you know, in this vast stadium without masks because they seem to be celebrating what they think is the end of this. It's not the end by any means. No, I mean, we're going to we're going to go into a new normal, if you will. And that new normal is going to be is that if you are vaccinated and caught up on your boosters, you're not going to get very ill if you're exposed and you're not going to be hospitalized. But problem is everybody else can be. And if the people who aren't vaccinated fill up the hospitals, you have a heart attack, you're in trouble. You have cancer, you're in trouble. You have any other disease that causes you to go to the hospital. They may not be able to treat you because the hospitals will be full. We have to think of each other. We have to think of one community here. And that's really the difficult part. If we have enough of these pills, potentially we can use that as a back way to take care of people who don't have the vaccine. But that's not really efficient in the big scheme of things. We're going to have to learn to live with this virus. And the way we're going to have to do it is through education. You know, we screwed up one big thing in our country is that we didn't have the vaccines administered by your local doctor. We had you go to a major pharmacy. And, you know, you have a relationship with your doctor. You trust her or him, and you'll listen to what they say, and you really have a yeah, respect but was it, but, yeah, but wasn't that because the vaccines were such the, the messenger RNA ones that most doctors didn't have the, the, the technical capability to store these vaccines? Oh, no question. Yeah. You're right. But that was the first three months. And after that, we started to have them so they could just be refrigerated like they are now. So we still, local doctors cannot give these vaccines. They're still given at the major pharmacies. And I think we want to get over that hump and the, the, the 60 plus percent range that we vaccinated in the United States and the 40 percent that we boosted. This is how we're going to have to do it. We do it every year with the flu shot and it is very successful. We have to do the same here. Dr. David Agus, USC's Allison Institutes for Transformative Medicine. Doctor, thanks. That's in depth for today. Back tomorrow.